Thank you for joining me on this episode of Foundaholic. It is a good one, guys. We have Alex Lazaro on the show. An amazing honor and pleasure to have him. Alex is a previous lecturer on entrepreneurship. He wrote an amazing book called Out Innovate, where he interviews innovators, entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs from all over the world and picks out different nuggets of information in order to help other people build successful companies. An amazing book, Out Innovate. It's so amazing, it's in different languages. That's how good it is. We have him on the show. He's now with Fluent Ventures. We're going to be talking about things like going global, building a sustainable company, collaborating with entrepreneurs, winning over an investor, investor biases, which is a thing. You might think if you hear an investor saying no, it's because of you and your idea. Absolutely not. It could be because of an investor bias. We're going to be talking about that. We're also going to be talking about investing in founders who have failed before in previous companies and what investors are looking at with founders who have failed and if it's a good thing or a bad thing. We're going to jump into that, guys. So it's an amazing show. Thank you again for joining and let's jump into it. We would love to hear from the author himself about what he has learned from interviewing entrepreneurs and from taking a global view of entrepreneurship and how that impacts the world and not just taking the whole Silicon Valley approach, which many have. So it would be nice to hear, hear your views. By day, I'm, I'm not an author. I'm a venture capitalist. Um, I run a fund called Fluent Ventures. I was at Omidyar Network and Cathay Innovation before that. Um, and on the side, I taught entrepreneurship uh, at the MBA and undergrad level at, at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies. And in both of these contexts, I was frustrated. I was frustrated because I wanted to share with my students best practice on innovation, but everything that was available was based in Silicon Valley in a very particular context of, you know, move fast and break things, lots of capital, blitzscaling, all these things. And the reality that I saw both investing and teaching was that context was different outside Silicon Valley. And I thought the best entrepreneurs around the world were not only reinventing the playbook, but actually were challenging fundamental conventional wisdoms and radically different things. And I think the best entrepreneurs, if it's in Lagos or in Sao Paulo or in uh, Tokyo, have more in common with each other than they might with their peers in Silicon Valley. And so I want to tell this story. So I interviewed 200 of the world's best founders, 100 unicorn founders, resident founders type profiles, including, of course, you, Chris, uh, were, were featured in the book and, um, and, tr and tried to distill what are a bunch of those strategies. And the, think of the book less as a recipe book, like follow ABC and you'll get D, and much more as a menu. Take the strategies that are applicable to your context, learn from those entrepreneurs and apply it there. Uh, and some might be and some might not be. So th that was the reason we wrote the book. And what are, what are some of the things that you learned that shocked you in interviewing all these entrepreneurs globally? Like what, what really stood out as one, a shocker, and two, maybe, you know, some DNAs and things you found that, you know, were pretty similar across the board. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me give you one example, and, and, and we can talk about many, but uh, in the book, I talk about camel startups. Uh, in Silicon Valley, conventional wisdom is blitzscale. You got to grow as fast as you can. It's okay to lose money in service of growth. It's okay to have poor unit economics in service of getting there eventually, and as a short-term vision. But outside of Silicon Valley, what I observed is the best entrepreneurs built from day one, sustainable economics, had low burn, had 
um, uh, a long-term outlook. And what that translated to in terms of the trajectory of their business is this uh, difference in J-curve. Um, so in, in the value of the concept of, of this J-curve, where at the beginning you lose money, um, so your revenues might be zero or whatever, but you're, you have a lot of burn and it goes down. And as you scale, it keeps going down and you're, you're spending a marketing budget, whatever. And then eventually uh, it kind of hockey sticks and, and hopefully up into to the right. I take uh, take an analogy out of my uh, my Canadian heritage. But what I observed outside of Silicon Valley is actually the best entrepreneurs had kind of a different growth curve and it looked a lot less like one big J and often a little bit more like little spurts where you might start, you might burn, but you're trying to get to revenue really quickly. And then you're kind of getting to a break even or a point where you're choosing what you're going to do next. And then you might do another dip, et cetera. And so that translated both as a reaction to the fact that there was less capital around, but actually also a strategic advantage that it made you more resilient and that you could control your own destiny and you could choose when and if to raise capital. And so this di- dichotomy or juxtaposition between what I think is traditional Silicon Valley best practice and what's actually happening among the best entrepreneurs uh, w- w- was pretty pretty stark. By the way, it's really interesting, right? Like today I read an article about unicorns, these unicorn startups that are dying and are having a challenge. Like the recipe book is kind of building startup camels. And actually we've seen a lot more resilience among founders that have taken this approach internationally um, than, than kind of the, the rapid blitz scale growth at all costs mentality. Yeah. I, and I think that the whole rapid, the rapid scaling is, uh, yeah, I've, I've never been a fan for it because you're spending all this money um, in immediately on trying to build customers and trying to get customers in. And you're not really focused on what the customers are saying, why are they coming and leaving and all that. And I think a lot of, a lot of founders just, and investors, they just focus on those numbers, you know, customer acquisition costs and how many customers are coming in. Yeah. But there's a whole lot more that you have to focus on in building a business than, oh, yeah, now we have 2x number of customers that we had last month. Yeah. But, you know, there's a whole lot more than just a number of customers. Like, how are you appealing to them? How are you growing? How are you going to maintain them and keep them sticky and keep them on your product so they're just not here this month and gone next month? And so yeah. many people just don't think about that. Yeah. And by the way, I'll add one point and nuance to this, which is I actually, you know, I'm a venture capitalist. I'm trying to invest in companies and turbocharge growth. Like that, that is the product I'm offering. But I, I really like companies that have thought very carefully about unit economics. Like I think it's okay if you double your users, but I think it needs to be underpinned by an understanding of, well, every dollar I spend on growth, yeah. like on, you know, this X dollars is my CAC, therefore yeah. Y dollars is my lifetime value at a fully loaded, aka like all the costs in gross margin level, right? Like you're, you're taking in the cost of goods sold and you're like, Hey, look, that, that money machine is worth $4 for every dollars in. Like that's a really good input. Um, yeah. and, and therefore it actually makes sense to perhaps turbocharge, spend as much money as possible right now before competitors figure out about this or, um, to, to accelerate a little bit for whatever reason that you, that you get better in economic scale. Like that, that could be a very good answer. But I just think it has to start with an understanding of unit, like in the base level, it needs to be a really, really solid foundation before you even start having these conversations. And so I, I think that's kind of the the camel philosophy. And being a camel is not not irreconcilable, but also also being a billion dollar business. Like I'm trying to invest in startups so there will be multi billion dollar outcomes, but that yeah. start as a foundation of philosophy of being a camel. Yeah. So out, out of curiosity, and you know, pulling from your book. 
from getting founders to have more of a global view mm-hmm. and not just, you know, a regional or a national. How have you seen that to really help operationalize and grow the companies that you interviewed and the companies that you, you know, you guys, you guys are invested, you guys are invested in companies now, but how are you seeing that as a real boost? Uh, and do you think travel is a requirement for every good CEO to, you know, to be more worldly or it'll be interesting oh, to just hear your view on that. Um, let's separate the two questions. Let's first talk about kind of what does it take to be a, a global company if, or if you should. And then two is if you should, what should you do? Yeah. I think on the former in Silicon Valley, conventionalism has moved to Silicon Valley, started a company here, targeted the U S market. It's massive. And by the way, that's a reasonably good answer when you're in the U S outside of the U S the average TAM, if you take away China and India, a very small handful of markets, like the average market size is meaningfully smaller. And so to build a couple hundred million dollar venture capital grade business, revenue business, you you know, you have to think about a larger TAM by necessity. And so what I have observed the best founders, those that have built kind of multi-billion dollar businesses, is they from day zero, very, very early, like much earlier in the journey, they might see it in a kind of Silicon Valley company, figure out a product and a culture and an operation that is able to translate around culture, around geographies and cultures and things like that. And, and by the way, the scope of that depends on the type of business. Like the larger you are in terms of your clients, like enterprise, or the larger, the more global the network effects, the more likely those companies will go global earlier. The more local the network effects, uh, the more kind of regional those kind of businesses will go. But but either way, I've seen kind of an, like an expansion. And so just, just to put some money, so, some meat on that bone, uh, some of that open AI will always try to be global, like high R&D, pretty global product. But Uber, I think fundamentally misunderstood the nature of its network effects, right? Like they tried to globalize, but actually it doesn't matter as a rider in the Bay Area if there are more drivers in Jakarta, although, you know, it's convenient, but it fundamentally doesn't matter to have two or three apps. Uh, the network effects only matter if there are more drivers in the Bay Area, frankly, even in my little neighborhood proximate to me. And so as a result, uh, the winner in the category of ride sharing was companies like 99 and Latam and Karim in the Middle East and Grab and Gojek in Southeast Asia. And by the way, the world's biggest is Didi. But they figured out local or regional strategies, but like regionalized much, much quicker um, than you might have expected otherwise. So even, even in the like, kind of the, the, the more local network effect businesses, we're seeing kind of regional players emerge when it's outside of Silicon Valley pretty quickly. Would you advise someone who's trying to build a global company or look at whatever strategy they currently have and say, I want to make this global, I want to go global. Would you advise them to at least travel to these regions or is it something that it's more analytical that they don't really have to travel and, and get their, you know, their feet wet and, and, you know, just really, I guess, simulate themselves in that environment. I'm just, because you've done so many, you've done so many interviews and you've researched so many um, entrepreneurs, I'm trying to look for that characteristic in going global and what you can advise an entrepreneur to do to go global. Should I travel to China? Should I travel to Africa to really get a sense or... Is that necessary? My idea, if I think my idea can translate, I should probably just try and translate and, you know, expand that way. 
I would say let's take away a very small set of type of businesses like true, you know, biotech where you're solving something that's like very simple, like heavy R&D kind of businesses like the large language models. Like let's take away that. And let's say just like normal software that serves people needs. Like I don't think it's possible to build a global business without being local in a bunch of different places. Like I think you have to win the local market um, and solve local needs and localize whatever your product or service is. I don't think there's any other way to do it. And I think it starts with a mindset from the founder and, and hopefully also a bunch of time understanding customers, like, you know, whether or not you have to like actually go physically there versus spend a lot of time understanding the market and have a team that is physically there. I, I think that kind of depends on the product and, and, and whatever you're doing. But yeah, unquestionably, one of the big themes for us and for me as an investor is that I actually think the best local teams are the ones that really understand local markets deeply or regional markets deeply are actually more poised to win. Um, and so my advice is like really get close to your customer, uh, whoever that customer is, uh, and, and meet them where they are and understand uh, why why they tick. And if you are a Silicon Valley company trying to conquer the world, like be careful. It is easier than ever to start a company. You've got a great idea. Like someone else can build that widget in that market, yeah. and if they know the customer better and have better relationships, like they will win. Um, yeah. And so how do you how do you actually balance that? Well, like actually try to try to try to think about it and be close to that customer and, and understand the need. So would you say this is where like, inclusive innovation comes in, hmm. where, you know, I'm trying to build something as an entrepreneur and I might, you know, go to another region and work with another entrepreneur there and, you know, come together and innovate something new and just work together? Would you, would you characterize that as a path to rapid success? I'm not sure. And I think it probably depends on the business. In the category, so I wouldn't want to generalize. I, I will tell you one of the things that I think is really powerful is as borders are seemingly going up around the world, I actually think there's a lot of room to bring founders together in similar categories that are not competitive. So in companies that are building local or regional companies, but similar around the world, I actually think there's an opportunity to bring those founders together, to learn from each other, to say, hey, like this thing worked to acquire customers or this thing worked um, as a way to deepen my product or whatever it is. Many of those insights, even if they need to be localized, end up translating really well. And so I, I think figuring out ways to share lessons on similar ideas that are very rapidly proliferating around the world is a really powerful tool to drive inclusive innovation. So that's one, one of the things I'm, I'm pretty focused on. I'm thinking a lot about, about how do you catalyze some of that cross-geography learning. As an entrepreneur, if I'm trying to find another entrepreneur in another region that might have a similar idea or a complementary idea to mine, what would you advise them to do? So, (laughs) because I I can see where it gets, it gets tough because as entrepreneurs, you're, you're thinking, Hey, I don't want anybody to steal my, steal my idea. You know, once I open up to somebody else about my idea, mostly if it's a company that hasn't launched or if it's still in its nascent, um, period, you know, I, it's very, very hard for entrepreneurs to open up to other entrepreneurs about what they're doing. But if that is almost necessary for me to grow, and I think I've found another entrepreneur that has a complementary product or, you know, has a value that I can work with, how would you recommend that Mm -hmm. um, those conversations happen? 
And and I'm asking you this because you have spoken to so many, you way more entrepreneurs than anyone I know for your book. So I mean, I don't know if you've seen it or if anybody spoke to you about it, but it'll be interesting to get your viewpoint because a lot of people listening to this podcast do have amazing businesses and they do want to expand globally. And if they have a product they can expand globally with, it'll be nice to see what your advice is on talking to other entrepreneurs. And Yeah, I, I, w- I would say, you know, I, I think the old adage of the idea doesn't matter, execution does. I think that is a hundred thousand percent true. Um, and insofar as you figure out ways to make your ability to execute the business more tactile and practical, I think that's what makes you be able to build towards a global business. And insofar as you're able to do that by getting ideas and knowledge from other folks, like that's a net positive thing that is more likely that your business will succeed than, uh, than the idea of getting stolen, uh, stolen. Um, so I, I would say I start with that kind of bias or, or, or kind of worldview as I think the pie gets bigger. It doesn't, it's not split. Um, and, and the second thing is, is a belief in the kind of business that I invest in fintech and health and e-commerce I actually think that in most categories and what I do, it won't be a global company that wins. Like I don't actually believe that you'll get a global Amazon. You actually have a federation of local Amazons. And by the way, like Flipkart in India is the winner and Mercado Libre is the winner in LATAM. Like localized versions of those kind of businesses are, are the ones that win. And, and so, you know, today I would say it probably doesn't make sense for the CEO of Mercado Libre to be talking to Jeff Bezos about what they're going to do. Like probably doesn't, but at the seed stage at the very early stage when you're trying to get to this execution game, I don't know. I, f- I feel like the roadmap for your peer that's also a seed stage company to be coming into your market is so far away that mm-hmm. actually the benefits of collaboration are higher and higher. Yeah. You know, from the practical standpoint, like of all, you know, we set these kind of conversations up and we say, Hey, look, it's up to you and whatever you want, you know, whatever you want to do. And your information is your information. We don't share it. We don't share it as a firm or, or whatever like that. We, we take that very seriously, but you know, with with a ninety nine percent probability, founders are really excited to meet peers, doing thinking about things in other geos, and you know, a very small handful of folks have, have been a little bit sensitive, and and I respect that. Right. Um, I I will say I I have observed more success than the folks that have like taken the approach of the pie gets bigger, uh, as exactly. it, and, and and so I I think that mindset I I have observed anecdotally as, as being kind of a, a higher likelihood recipe for success. Sounds good. I, and I agree with you 100%. It's just, it would be nice to hear it from an expert, <laughs> someone who, who has who has interviewed a lot and um, who's currently, you know, working on his own company. Um, well, and, and by the way, I'll add just one, one like data point to this is like, I think there are businesses that are IP businesses and there are others that are operational businesses. And so if you are an IP business, like if you are like doing drug discovery, you've like figured out, I'm not, like ignore everything I've said. Keep it to yourself. But if you're like an operational business, yeah. actually like the meat and potatoes of doing this is, is I, I don't think there's any like real secrets. There's just operational excellence that's learned. And if you can like accelerate some of that, that, that ends up being really powerful. And by the way, it doesn't need to be from the exact replica of your business. It's just, you know, I bet you would add a ton of value to any e-commerce startup in any emerging yeah. market based on what you've done on the ground. Right? Done. On the right. ground. And, 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 and so I, I don't think anyone would see that as competitive. I think they would see that as learning from a peer or a mentor. Uh, and, and, and that's, and I think that's really powerful. Agreed. I want to shift a little bit to entrepreneurial mindset. Sure. 
how how would you define an entrepreneurial mindset based um, a successful entrepreneurial mindset if you were to define it and pick one up how would you define that entrepreneurial mindset oof um, there's so much in there to unpack maybe I'll tell you the kind of things that I look for in founders that I invest in perhaps as a way to kind of define define the question yeah in, in a way that I perhaps perhaps have a perspective. I have a perspective on the, on the things that I like in, in founders. So, so, uh, so, uh, apologies for the tautology there, but look, I like founders that have experience. So have been working for a while. I rarely back kind of the 22 year old hooded warrior. Um, uh, I, I like founders that have demonstrated excellence in whatever they do. Ideally, by the way, in a startup before, um, either as an exec or, or as a founder, but, but like have demonstrated some, some leadership excellence and operational excellence. Two is I like founders that have uh, industry expertise. I invest in fintech and e-commerce and health. Like those are things that actually have some, in, you know, it's financial technology. The financial is first. I like I like founders with some level of domain expertise, where you understand that the thing that they're doing is something that they have just dedicated a long time to. It just really pains them, and when the going gets tough, you know that they're they've just been fighting this. There's a reason that they're doing that, and then I think character wise. I like folks that are good storytellers that can tell their story. Mm-hmm. I think that's really good for fundraising. It's equally good for hiring, trust, ethics. I, I, my job is not to be doing the job of the founder. I'm, j- I'm just trying to be catalytic, but I just need to feel like I trust them completely uh, with, w- with, with running the operation. Energy, uh, just being very dynamic, uh, energetic. Like I, I really, really appreciate that. One heuristic I've thought a lot about is this question of, would I go work for this person? Like, would I be willing, like, am I excited enough about the company? You know, I, like, I love what I do. I, like, this is what I'm gonna yeah. do for the next, next 25 years. But like, is there is there an alternate universe that Alex would quit what he was doing, you know, and go do this? Like, and if the answer to that is yes, you know, a lot of the proxies I'm describing to you are kind of things that might get me to that answer. And so the answer to that is yes, like I'm that excited about the problem and I'm that excited about the person and I'm that excited about like me working for that person. Like, that's a pretty cool, that's a pretty cool heuristic. Um, as well, and so I've I've thought a lot about that too. No, I I think that's I've I've never heard anybody describe it that way. Where as I'm pitching to you, you're saying, "Would I work for you and quit my job?" That's I think that's a that brings everything you said into in, into a single bottle, you know, a single shell. Because you have to be a really good storyteller. You have to be compelling. You have to have passion in it, and and the list goes on and on to everything you just described. So it makes sense that that's how you can define that. So every interesting that that's actually an interesting. I, I've never thought of that, Alex. That's that's really cool. So every pitch you basically heard that you really liked, it's because you said to yourself, you know what, I might work for this particular individual. Is yeah, that, and, and I think right? I think it's a really powerful forcing mechanism because I have a portfolio of 20 companies, right? Or 25, like, you know, like VCs have big portfolios, but I have a portfolio of one on my time as an employee. Yeah. Uh, I can only really work on one at a time. And so if you force yourself into that constraint of saying, hey, I can only do one thing, I think then you end up choosing something that is a big enough problem that matters enough to you that you're really passionate about and two, hopefully optimizing for people that you want to go to battle with for the next whatever decade or so. And and so I, I think it ends up being a powerful heuristic at kind of judging the two of the important elements of kind of a startup of like problem and then team problem fit. 
and then obviously there's the merits of the business, et cetera, that need to go in after. But I, but I think it's a nice way to evaluate mindset. Very interesting. Now, when it comes to innovation and being innovative with a unique selling proposition in, in a general term, how do you think you can and set up the bar to be high enough where that USP is compelling enough for an investor to invest? What Are there any tips or hints you can, or just nuggets of information you can put out there to help individuals? Because I think as entrepreneurs, one of the things that we worry about is that USP and ensuring that that USP is a little bit high enough, the barrier is high enough for an investor to one, invest, um, and two, for the market, but even more important for the market to actually say, look, I'm going to leave this competitor to come to your product because your USP is gives me that much more value. How do you gauge that with investments and with people you've interviewed? You, you know, is there is is there something you're looking for in that USP to to help? I'll start by saying that the vast, vast majority of founders and businesses I meet and have the privilege of getting to know are incredible. And it's people that are really passionate about what they're doing. They've left their job to pursue this. They've given their heart and soul. And by the way, they've already often raised money by the time they meet me. And so they've already been validated. They have like product and they have customers. And so actually often they're, they're already really good businesses by and large. Um, and the old adage of dating, right? It's not you, it's me. Like actually most of the time it's that. Like I say no most of the time. But a big chunk of the time, it's because it doesn't fit the very specific nature of what my strategy is or the stage I like to invest or like my own, frankly, biases. Like I bias towards older founders, which means that it's harder if you haven't had a job and you're right out of college to get money from our fund. Not impossible. It's just one of the biases I have and, and I'm probably going to be wrong a ton. And so there's a bunch of like, hey, does this startup fit within the mental frame of this VC and the strategic frame of they have? doesn't mean that the company is bad. I'm going to admit like my anti-portfolio of companies that I've said no to that have become great is, is long and that's okay. It just happens to not be a fit for me. So I, 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 w- I would also start with that or say, hey, if VC saying no to you doesn't mean that you have a bad business. It might just mean that you have not the right business for their model at their stage or for the like particular partner you're speaking to. That being said, some of the things I look for in a founder is you know we're, we're looking for proven de-risk business models that exist somewhere. Second, we're looking for massive markets. And three, I'm looking for the early inklings. I'm a seed, C plus, A investor. I'm looking for the early inklings of strong product market fit and scaling fit. Like, do customers love this? And is there a repeatable way to sell this at scale? I'm trying to figure that out. And then lastly, why is this founder and founding team the best people to do this in the world, in this region, at this exact moment? And if I can wrap my head around those things and convince myself that I believe that, um, th- then we invest. And, you know, the reality is like, I'm looking for a lot of very specific things in each of those categories that are later with our, with our philosophies as a fund and my own biases. Um, and so all this kind of mixes together, but that's what we're looking for. Okay. And, and I want to say thank you because to the people who are listening, who have heard, you know, they've, they got their first no and they're just deflated from meeting with an investor and just getting an outright, absolutely not. With what you've said, you know, you have your biases and you have those kinds of key things that you're looking for. And the fact that you say no doesn't mean the idea is bad. It just means it's not right for you as an investor and they weren't able to win you over because maybe it didn't check some boxes that you need checked for your investment. 
but it doesn't mean it's a bad idea. So it doesn't mean they should just give up and just walk away because there's so many people who they hear two no's and they just, you know, abandon ship, which should never be the case. So I'm happy you've uh, at least shared your insight so people can understand that it's, you know, it's not, it's not them. <laughs> it could be you. It's not always about them. By, by the way, I will mention, I really like founders. They've gotten a lot of no's either in their current business or the next one and stuck with it. I mm. really like sussing out. Like, like this journey around a startup is is not a three, four year thing. It's a 10 year thing. And I want to back people that want to be there for 10 years or you know, st- stick it out. And it's going to be hard and it's going to suck. Actually, getting a bunch of no's and sticking with it, I think ends up being a badge of honor down the line um, and to be able to tell founders you know, how committed, uh, to tell investors and, and, and the folks you hire how committed you are to the, to the idea that you're going to see it through no matter what. Just, I just want to go on that point. Out of interest, would you say founders who have, and, and this might be a too general a statement, but it's an interesting statement. Would you say founders who have failed are more investable who have failed and have learned and have, you know, come back are more investable than founders who have never failed. It's a, I know it might be an odd question for you to answer, but I think it's an interesting one because there are quite a few founders that I know who have failed. And I think they have learned amazing lessons because the lessons you, you learn from challenges and failures are way more impressive than the lessons you learn from success. I, I like backing founders that have demonstrated excellence somewhere. So mm-hmm. I think I think demonstrating your ability to lead and and operational execution, et cetera, but the inputs don't necessarily lead to outputs, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's possible your business failed for a variety of exogenous reasons, and by the way, you'll learn, et cetera, and by learning someone else's money, um, often. <laughs> and so what I what I often look for is someone that you know I like folks that are committed to the craft of entrepreneurship, have aptitude towards it. And so looking for that, obviously it's nicer if someone's landed the plane before and sold and exit, like there, there is some amount of Agreed. repetition to that, but actually someone that has failed and failed in quotation marks. Like I think, I think there's a variety of lear- learning that like, you know, but, but that has figured out how to build a product, how to sell the customers, how to maybe hire a sales team. Like those are all a bunch of accomplishments that are going to be very repeatable to the next journey. And you know, maybe what they didn't achieve in the last thing was figuring out something that an acquirer might want to buy at that exact moment in the economic cycle or whatever. That's also okay. But, uh, but yeah, I would rather back an entrepreneur that's tried before and it's not worked out than someone that's never tried before. I think, I think you have a, a, a de-risk founder and you know, you know, you know, a little bit, you know, what their, what their mentality and fortitude is and, and, and them getting back up again and doing it again, I think is a really, really strong symbol of who they are. I think that's awesome. Well, I know that our time has come to an end, but I'm going to, I want to start something new. I released this uh, card game. Yeah, it's a, a card game called um, Ready, Set, uh, CEO. And I got um, input from CEOs around the world um, giving out questions. So I'm going to ask you a question that's from the game. And it will be nice to see how you, how you answer. I know this is a... This is Are there right Russia. answers or, uh, or, uh, or, or, oh. uh, or it could be anything? This could be anything. I've just, I just picked a random card. So this one says, if you could start one company and you were guaranteed success, what business would you start? Nuclear fission or fusion uh, in a micro scale way. I think that if you solve the energy crisis, hmm? you can effectively solve many of humans' problems, uh, humanity's problems. You can solve climate change because all of a sudden carbon capture at scale becomes affordable. You can solve the water crisis 
because reverse osmosis becomes affordable. You can solve so many of humanity's problems with free or marginal cost zero energy around around the planet. So if, if it was guaranteed success, I, I think that could be one of the most most powerful solutions to have. So if you find an entrepreneur that's doing this uh, with a repeatable <laughs> business model that, that works with their strategy, I, I'd love to meet them. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. I, I know everyone has, has learned a lot and you've been a blessing to, to all who have heard this. So thank you for your time and really appreciate your, um, your joining me on the Founder Hollow podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Before you take your brain on an amazing journey applying what you just learned, here is what the lawyers are forcing me to tell you. And you know, you have to listen to the lawyers. So here goes. This podcast is presented to you solely for educational and informational entertainment purposes only. I'm a serial entrepreneur as you know it, and I have a ton of personal experience in the school of entrepreneurship and hard knocks. But I am not a licensed teacher, therapist, and this podcast is not intended as a substitute for you to get more information and absorb more from other people. In fact, I encourage you to always learn more and seek out various viewpoints and opinions from people you trust and people who want you to succeed. Remember, it all ends well with faith. Stay blessed and humble to learn, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Take care.